Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes something so monumental happens to you that you just feel like you're not the same person as you used to be. We can all think of things like that in our own lives. But no matter how major the event you have in mind, it's hard to imagine that it's as big as one that long ago happened to all of us, every single human. It's not our brains and it's not our bodies and it's not really our genes at all. Adam Rutherford is a geneticist who has studied this epic event, an event that, yes, is pretty far in the rearview mirror at this point, but it helped make you who you are. Something happens uh, 50,000 years ago or so, and, and our brains become the way they are. And what we think it is is that our populations grew uh, rapidly, possibly as a result of changing climates. And as our populations grew, we became much better at uh, transferring bits of information, bits in the sort of digital sense. All of a sudden, well, not really all of a sudden, but pretty quickly in evolutionary terms, things just changed. Rutherford is the author of the new book Humanimal, and he hosts a science radio show on the BBC. He says many scientists are starting to examine what they believe was a major leap forward. Information had always been valuable to animals, to people, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 years ago, we just got a lot better at sharing it. The model is called demographic transition, which is a deeply unsexy way of describing this. But it's it's in our sort of our ability to teach in groups and to share information uh, and to transmit culture in all directions. Humans do this all the time. We do it with every breath. Me and you are doing this right now. And every time you speak to anyone, you're transferring a unit of information to someone you probably aren't related to. And and I, I think this this model of how our minds acquired this framework from which all of the things that we do now today and recognize as being very human, that all comes from us getting much, much better at sharing ideas. We're, we're, a, we're a species of teachers. Just to set the stage here, Rutherford says that further back, around 80,000 years ago, some Homo sapiens got adventurous and left Africa, which is where all people were once based. And if your family doesn't trace their recent-ish roots to Africa, if you're from Japan or Canada or Brazil... Those wanderers are your ancestors. And those who left Africa started to spread out. And I mean, way out. So that was like 80,000 years ago. Then 40 or 50,000 years ago, as Mary Poppins might say, something in the wind changed. We see suddenly, and suddenly like over thousands of years, the evidence of sort of abstract thought, of complex technology, of artwork, of musical instruments. And all of these things are indicative of brains and minds which are the same as ours. And we don't see evidence of them, or we don't see consistent evidence of them before this period of about 50, 40, 30,000 years ago. But remember, there were no telegraphs, no telephones, no newspapers, no Pony Express, no way for folks in China to call up their friends in Germany or Kenya and say, hey, look what we discovered. We can make art. We can make little statues of women. And even though they aren't people we understand what they're supposed to represent. Somehow, though, all over the world, people were changing. They were becoming, well, like us. And the key to that leap away from the rest of the animal kingdom was specialization. So, so there's no other organism on Earth that has such widely distributed talents, unevenly distributed talents. If you want to know how to do something, 
like I don't know, f- fix your car or go fishing. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know whether you can fix your car or go fishing. I can't. But the, if you want to do <laughs> I can't that, do either of those things. <laughs> right. So what do you do? You take your car to the garage to assert someone who can right. who can fix a car, or you learn how to fish by asking someone who can fish. And I think you're exactly right that we begin to see specialization in community groups. Not everyone would have been able to carve those little Venus figurines that, that you were talking about. Not everyone would have been a cook or a hunter. And I think that we see this growth in our in our modern mindset when people are willing to share those bits of information. So, you know, if you're carving a flute, maybe being able to play the flute made you more sexually attractive to other women or, or men. But not everyone could do that. And so being able to spread that information, you know, allows our population to, to grow and for, for communities to, be, to become successful. But every good story has a twist, and this one is no exception. So to recap, before we get into the twist, we're pretty amazing, which you already know. We've got all these fancy tools, and we behave in really sophisticated ways, and we've got fashion and fire, and on and on it goes. And then, a few hundred years ago, another big leap occurred. This one wasn't biological either. It was also about knowledge and how we understand who we are. What happened was that a series of smart people, people who were the exemplars of why humans aren't anything like other animals, people who were brilliant at transmitting knowledge, they started to realize, you know, we might have overplayed our hand on this one. Copernicus, Galileo, they're people who inch us back away from the notion of the earth as being special and us being specially created and, and all those ideas are very much tied up with, with religion. And, and then Darwin comes along. You know, evolution was in the air before the origin of species in the middle of the 19th century. So he, he wasn't the first person to think about us being evolved, but he was the first person to understand the mechanism, natural selection by which we evolved. And so he then very clearly says, well, we are undoubtedly an animal and here's how we got to be where we are. Ian McCalman, a biographer of Darwin, told me in 2018 that Darwin's suggestion that we were closely related to other animals, it didn't jive well with the prevailing notion that we're special. There were controversies in the newspaper. I mean, particularly the idea that the idea that's implicit in the origin, although never ever mentioned in the origin, that man might be derived in some way from a line of animals that included apes. That became the kind of thing that was caricatured in the newspapers, you could imagine. Rutherford says, look, this is the paradox of you. Something hugely consequential happened to your ancestors 40 or 50,000 years ago that made you, and everyone you know, quite different from most other animals. But he says, we may have gotten a little too fixated on the differences. The line that I use in the to open the book is from is not from Darwin, but it's Hamlet because he describes us as the paragon of animals, and that's two hundred and fifty years before Darwin's on on the scene. He, he he says specifically what in apprehension how like an angel in in intellect like a like gods we are you know these amazing creatures. And then he goes on to say, but what, what is, this? is this quintessence of dust? Meaning. At the same time, we are just we are just matter. How is it that we can be both those two things at the same time? And that's just the, that's the space that I want to be in. I want to be saying, yeah, we're special and we're biological. And here's the biological truth. We're not the only species to use tools or fire. We're not the only species that has complicated sex lives. We're not even the only species that's into fashion. 
And if you want proof of that, says Rutherford, look no further than a fashionista named Julie. Julie is a, a chimpanzee in a very studied reserve in Africa. And one day in 2007, she was observed picking up a stiff blade of grass and sticking it in her left ear. And that's an odd thing to do. No one had seen a chimp do that before. And within a few days, her son, who was called Jack, well, that's what we call him, um, was, <laughs> was also doing it, right? Sticking a blade of grass in his left ear. And then within a few, few weeks of that, it was observed that a whole bunch of this one particular tribe were going around selecting a piece of grass, sticking it in their left ear. Never the right ear, right? So, so mm. it, it, it's not clear why they were doing this. And it's not clear why Julie did it. And it's not clear why everyone started copying her. But it's as near as we've got to a, a sort of fashion, or some, right. something which is for no particular reason, but people cop, copy it, or pe- I say people, chimpanzees are copying it to maybe to stay in the group. Julie died in 2012, And that tribe is still doing it. And not only that, but two tribes that live nearby but aren't related and had limited interactions because, they, you know, chimpanzees are very territorial. Two tribes are also hanging around with blades of grass sticking out of their ears. So no reason she's doing this, as far as we can tell. Like, (laughs) it doesn't help her to do it. Not as far as we can tell. It's just like, to use my words, not theirs, it's cool. I think that's exactly it. When you see something... (laughs) You know, we, we, we do hang out with people who are similar to us and we do like to emulate people who we admire in groups. They dress in similar ways. That's that's all part of, you know, well-understood psychology of in-group selection. The best explanation we've got for Julie's stick in her ear is exactly that, that it's mm. a fashion. And everyone mm. copied her because they thought, yeah, that, that looks kind of cool. Mm. <laughs> Chimps also have other ways in which they're like us, and one of them uh, is violence. You know, it's interesting, you know, the question of, like, why is there violence at all? But I think a lot of people, when it comes to human societies, attribute in some way to culture. Like, the le- you know, a leader incites people to violence, or people have different religions, so they think, well, I'm better than this group because I believe in this thing and they believe in this other thing, and so I'm going to, you know, try to eradicate these people, or, you know, we're, we're just entitled to do whatever to these, other, to these other people. But violence is really, uh, it may be cultural, but it is not limited to people. Um, do you want to talk about violence and chimps? Yeah, violence is inherent to natural selection. It's inherent to to evolution. And that's because natural selection involves competition. And many strategies within nature are actually, they look violent, but they're very, very cleverly evolved to avoid violence, in fact. So, you know, rutting stags. They're actually trying not to be too violent because either one could get injured, but they're trying to establish a, a hierarchy within as a proxy for actually harmful violence. Now... We, of course, have taken violence to technological levels which are un- unprecedented, and we have formulated organized violence in the in the form of war. And war appears to be a continuous presence in, in human history. Now the oldest example of sort of strategy group level violence is about 10,000 years ago, in, again in East Africa, where we see evidence of a, of a slaughter which includes pregnant women and children who appear to be to have been bound 
um, and then slung into a lake after they've been killed, using weapons that we don't think would have normally been carried by humans at that stage. So it looks like premeditated group-level violence. And I think it's 27 bodies, I think, in that, in that case. And so it's, that's the earliest example of, of warlike behaviour. So there's violence in nature, and there's very, very structured and extreme violence in, in humans, and that's always been the way. But chimpanzees are really interesting because they, they are a, a patriarchal society with males at the top. They are an extremely violent societal structure, and we see evidence of warlike behaviour in a way that is, feels more similar to us than other organisms. So one, one example is in the Gombe Reserve a few years ago. This is, this is where Jane Goodall, the famous Jane Goodall, mm-hmm. was, was observing these types of behaviours. There was the death of a ruling patriarch and, and a division of power as a result because there were two sons who w- would have inherited that crown, but they were challenged as being weak by... Um, and another group within this tribe. And there was about four years of north-south conflict, clear strategies, um, guerrilla-type warfare. That's ironically guerrilla with an E, a U-E rather than as in a guerrilla. And targeted assassinations, patrolling in silence, which is not something that chimpanzees do. So going off in, in single file around territory edges, and then storming in to an in, to kill an individual, and we, after about four years of this, um, the divide was over, and the, the the South had won, and the tribes were unified again. That is incredible to me. Like I have to remind myself when you say when you tell that story that you're not talking about humans. You've got a patriarch; he dies. The kingdom has to be divided between his children. Um, Let's pause here for just a minute. I'm going to come back with Adam Rutherford, who's the author of Humanimal. And when we come back, we're going to talk about our sex lives um, and why they're a lot less unique than you might think. So just briefly, we're going to travel back in time. And I'm talking pretty far back, like 200, 300,000 years. We call them archaic Homo sapiens, but I'm not sure the distinction means anything. But physically, they're basically us. That's geneticist Adam Rutherford describing the humans we'd meet if we could do that time traveling. You know, if you saw them on the subway and, and they were wearing regular clothes, you, you, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, that guy over there is, is like a quarter of a million years different from us. Rutherford is the author of the book Humanimal, and he argues that even though quarter-million-year-old people could totally fit in on the subway, as long as we made a stop at the gap first, they would have one big difference from us, abstract thought. It wasn't until much, much later, about 40,000 years ago, that we broke away from the animal kingdom in terms of how well we transfer knowledge and how much we specialize. Some of us became bricklayers, others made musical instruments, others crafted shoes. And that, over time, made us who we are. People with loads of tools and books who can design fancy clothes and draw pictures and create art. Think about the the mental capacities required to do that. Of course, you know, we do it all the time. We're impressed when our kids start drawing when they're, you know, three or four, and then they become skillful at something. And it's kind of weird to think that that wasn't always the case for our species, but it sort of comes at this time that, that 
we transfer from being an earlier, sort of simpler, less sophisticated ape into being the type of creatures that can carve figurines. And those new abilities convinced us over time that we were nothing like our fellow animals. But as science has increasingly shown, though we do indeed have special traits, a lot of what we think is unique to humans, like fashion, like organized violence, like using tools, like complicated sex lives, it really isn't. And let's dwell for a minute on those sex lives, which seem so influenced by culture, by what we've read, by what we've learned about on screens. Rutherford says, it's amazing how unoriginal we are. I kept you know, sort of using, looking at human behaviors and saying, is this, the, is this the thing? People have written about this being the trigger or this being the thing that this separates us from them. And every time I asked that question, the answer turned out to be a massive no. Mm. So the reason I was thinking about sex is because when we look at the statistics, uh, which I did with a, 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 a friend of mine at Cambridge, a statistician called David Spiegelhalter, Okay, so I, the, the way I was setting it up was to use that Richard Dawkins idea at the beginning of The Selfish Gene, which is that if an alien came to look at us, to study us, it, very quickly they would notice that we spend a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of effort trying to have sexual relations with other members of the same species, right? So you'd then think, well, why do they do that? Now, every high school student knows the answer to that. We <laughs> have sex in order to make small versions of ourselves to reproduce. Right. But when you look at the numbers, which I did with David Spiegelhalter, it turns out that for the UK, and I hope this is the same for the rest of the world, <laughs> only about one in a thousand sexual encounters that could result in a pregnancy actually does. So that's not even statistically significant. That's not even on the graph um, in terms of significance. And then you put on top of that all of the sex that we have, that we enjoy, that cannot result in a pregnancy. And all of a sudden you're like, well, what is the primary purpose of sex? Mm -hmm. Is it reproduction? Well, no, no, according to how we actually have sex. An alien would never work out <laughs> that we have sex in order to make babies. Right. So then you say, okay, well, maybe that's it. Maybe we've decoupled sex from reproduction, and that is the thing which is us. So then you ask the question, do other animals, not us, have sex for non-reproductive reasons? And the answer is yes. <laughs> they All the time, they have loads of non-reproductive sex uh, in every shape, form that you could imagine. And again, it's that, you know, we were just talking about this. Some of those behaviours look very familiar to us. Your listeners can use their imaginations. They, they, they are things that we might do, both po positive and enjoyable and, and also unpleasant and, in many cases, illegal. Th those are things that we recognise. We do see those behaviours in other animals. Some of them fit into established evolutionary paradigms. They, they, they are behaving like that because... That, that fits in within the, how we understand sexual selection to work. Others, we got no idea. I mean, the, the, the giraffes is my favorite example of this. More than 90% of giraffe sexual encounters are male to male. And homosexuality, if, you, if it's exclusive, is an evolutionary dead end. But they're not exclusive. And during the time that they, these giraffes have been observed, which is thousands of hours at, over many years at three different locations in, in Africa, they have a healthy um, brood of calves when they do have sex with females. But giraffes are segregated into male herds and female herds most of their lives. And they only interact with each other when they want to have reproductive sex. 
but most of the sexual encounters in giraffes are between males. We got no idea why that is the case. I was going to ask you if people who study giraffes know what's, you know, what's going on. No, not really. No, okay. No, no, not really. And I love those. I love those. When I tell these to, I, I spend a lot of time talking to school age kids. And I love saying that. I love saying we don't know the answer to this because that's your job, right? I've told you what the what the, the, the scientific problem is. Now you go off and do a degree and become a a scientist and and come back to me in 10 years time and 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 you you give me the answer to that because that's a that's an interesting problem that is one that doesn't fit into our understanding of general evolutionary biology so so go out and find out well it's interesting because you say in a lot of cultures both now but in the past when when the culture has really been against homosexuality. One of the arguments has often been it's not natural. It's against nature. And you're like, uh, well, look at nature. I, I, I'm, I don't think that really makes any sense. Not even close. I mean, uh, homosexual behavior in nature is, is, I mean, it's close to universal. Wherever we look, we see homosexual behavior. Sometimes it's, it's like I said, sometimes it's easily, easily ex- explainable, like some female cows sometimes mount each other, and that appears to induce estrus. It makes them more fertile. In hyenas, are a, uh, they have a matriarchal society, so they're, they're, they're dominated by alpha females, and, and social structure is determined by your relationship to females and males that are related or interact with females. That's how they get their status. So some of the things we really understand... And others, we, we just don't, we, we, you know, like the giraffes. We don't, we don't know why they do that, and hopefully one day we will. But, yeah, it's contra naturum is the Latin phrase that, that, that the church had for several centuries for homosexuality. They just didn't look, or they were in <laughs> denial, because it, it's everywhere. <laughs> so let's talk finally about one more way in which, if people are thinking about how we're different from the animal kingdom, seems almost certainly to really set us apart, and that is the use of tools. I mean, we could point to them right now. I'm looking at a computer as I talk to you. I'm speaking into a microphone. You're in a studio. Like, all these things are these tools we've built to whatever, fill in the blank, like keep us out of the cold, talk to people who are far away, you know, keep track of the notes that I you know, took from reading your book and all that. But you say even that, the notion that like, oh, just we use tools, that's not quite right either. Right. So, yeah, we, this, is, this is something that Darwin thought and, and wrote in, in The Descent of Man. We are obligate tool users, meaning that we, we can't function without extending our physical capabilities by manipulating the environment into what we refer to as tools. So that's a kind of, you know, boring, techie, sciencey description of what a tool is. It, we've, we've been tool users for millions of years, for longer than Homo sapiens has existed, and in fact, longer than any human has existed. We now know the earliest tool users in the hominids, which is our broader family, is about 3.1 million years ago, Kenyanthropus, Platyops. And then we see much more sophisticated tools in the last 100,000 years until it's me and you talking using a microphone in, in two right. studios right. with computers. Right. So you say, well, is that is that right? Is it just us that has tools? Well, you know, we know the answer to that because you watch nature documentaries and we see <laughs> chimpanzees using sticks and mm-hmm. orangutans using leaves and and nowadays we're looking at crows and other corvids and other birds who are, who are sophisticated tool users but it turns out that about one percent of animals use tools which is doesn't sound like much but that's literally thousands of, of different species none 
to the degree of sophistication that, that, that we do. But they are many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of animals that are also obligate tool users. You talk about this one particular animal that uh, this one particular bird that the aboriginals in Australia realized um, this bird uses fire. I mean, you know, we think like that's that's definitely a special thing that only we do. Yeah. But not so. Yeah. Right. Right. So another sort of uniqueness theory over the years has been um, that we are pyrophiles, the pyrophilic ape theory. We are obligate fire users. We've been dependent on fire for you know, hundreds of thousands of years, probably difficult to get the exact numbers right. We do know that many animals are reliant on annual fires in in Africa and in Australia, but no animal can start a new fire apart from us until 2017 when it was written up in the scientific literature, although, as you say, Abor- Aboriginal Australians have known about this maybe for thousands of years, mm. It's actually three types of raptor, so three three types of, of birds of prey have been observed doing this. When the fires come in Western Australia, they'll fly down, pick up a stick with their beak or their more likely their talons that's burning, and they'll fly away over a, a natural or man-made fire barrier, um, which have been carefully placed, if they're man-made, to stop these wildfires spreading. Mm. And they'll fly to a dry bit of brush and then drop it in there, go and perch in a tree and wait for the little critters to come running out so they don't get burnt to death, at which point they get eaten to death by these birds. So it, it's, it's an amazingly sophisticated skill, that, to right, understand right. fire, to have a complex relationship with fire. And to have, like, a several-step plan. Like, I'm going to go yeah. get this fire, bring it over exactly. here, it'll burn things, things will run away from it, then I'll get them. I mean, it's like you've got, like, you've got the whole plan laid out. Exactly. And also, it's dangerous, and they recognize that it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And when, when they've been written up in the, in the scientific literature, they account for the fact that they drop them a lot because they burn. You know, like, you, like you're holding a, candle, a, a match when you're lighting a candle and it gets too close to your fingers and you throw it away. So, it's, it's the, it, you know, they, they recognize that this is dangerous behavior, it's skillful behavior, it's sophisticated behavior. But, yeah, like you said, the planning required to do that to understand the fire, to understand that other animals fear fire and that you can use that, both the fire and the fear of fire, to just have a huge buffet. So we're not the only animal that can start new fires. We don't think they can, they can start it from scratch like we can, but oh, who knows, maybe that's just coming. <laughs> well, and in some ways, I feel like this brings us back to the overall point that you're trying to make, that we are part of the animal kingdom. Uh, sure, we're unique, um, but we also have a lot in common, whether it's tools or impulses or like the pressures that we feel every day. And to deny that would be wrong. It would be wrong. We are evolved beings. Our minds are evolved. We are the product of evolution. But we are also cultured, sophisticated social beings who face well, we've given ourselves, we've gifted in the invention of ourselves through cultural transmission, through demographic transition, through the cognitive revolution, whatever you want to call it. We have gifted ourselves the ability to not behave in base ways, to not, to choose not to do the thing which 100,000 years ago or 250 million years ago an animal that we are descended from might have done. And and again, that is a celebration of of us as as biological beings that are evolved but have evolved to be determined by 
our own actions and our own culture. We have offloaded our behavior from hardware to software. And, and it is, I just think it's worth celebrating that. Adam Rutherford is a science writer and BBC radio host. His most recent book is Humanimal, How Homo Sapiens Became Nature's Most Paradoxical Creature, A New Evolutionary History. Adam, thanks for your time. Cara, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure talking to you. As we talked about, there are thousands of species that use tools. On our website, we're going to have more about a few of them, including a video of pom-pom crabs using another animal, stinging anemones, as weapons. That's at innovationhub.org.